Today on the Geopolitical Pickle, it's my pleasure to have a guest and friend of friend of mine, Ridvan Acosta. He's an analyst at Geopolitical Futures and Strategy and Future, soon to have a PhD from the University of Warsaw Center for Strategic Studies. You're originally from Abkhazia in Georgia, and you lived in Crimea and Odessa before moving to Poland now where you live. So welcome to the show, first of all, Ridvan. Thank you, Ron, for having me. Uh, just one correction. I'm originally from Crimea, but grew up, uh, born in, in Abkhazia. So I'm born in Abkhazia, grew up, yeah, yeah. grew up there for a bit and then moved to Crimea until mm-hmm. the Russian invasion in 2014. Fantastic. Well, again, thanks for coming on. And the reason I've got you on today is to give an update of what's happening with the current situation of the war in Ukraine. Because the last time we actually talked about this was way back in November, before the winter, where we covered what we predicted would be happening across the winter. We gave a summary of the war up until that point. But at that point, it was even before Ukraine had taken the city of Kherson. So we'd like to get, first of all, like an update from that period to now, what's happened. I think there's been big updates at the start, and then it's sort of stagnated for a while. And now things are starting to move again. So I guess if you could just run us through the development of the war since since that time, that would be great. Yes, uh, I think it's uh, we are witnessing sort of uh, like if make a bigger picture, we are witnessing some kind of tango dance uh, when everything depending when you start think mobilization and how successful this mobilization. So uh, we are witnessing sort of equality in terms of the conventional warfare in Ukraine between between two different belligerent sides. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the men, the manpower has a power <laughs> and uh, it uh, has a direct impact on the battlefield. It's visible uh, throughout this uh, more than one year war uh, because uh, Ukrainians made own moves. They made uh, quite success- successful uh, counteroffensive operations and managed to force out the Russians from the right bank of the Dnieper. But after, as we know, from the September, Russians started to make a mobilization and eventually already at the end of the, let's say, in, exactly in November, uh, started uh, this uh, mobilization started to impact on the battlefield. So, and uh, November... December and beginning of January, it was a year, uh, the period of stabilization or some kind of that the Russians managed to stabilize the front and uh, slowly, slowly they were taking initiative. And as we know uh, about Bakhmut, so because Bakhmut was on the agenda, or at least as I am following the uh, situation in, in, in Ukraine more than one half a year and uh, uh, it was constantly uh, constantly Russians experts were paying attention uh, to Bakhmut but only this year it's become real some kind of sort of um, you know um, a pin of entire battle of war in Ukraine uh, and maybe the only the only uh, theater small theater operational theater which was moving uh, in 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 Russian events, so Russians were were advancing in particular small this small operational theater, uh, but Russians it's a be, let's say it's the beginning of this year they tried to make some uh, military like uh, some advances, particularly in uh, Lugansk direction. I mean in Kharkov to take 
retake some territories, but they were not successful. But even they were comp comparing, uh, I would say, successful comparing with what happened in Uglidar. It's like just below Donetsk city. It was ended with complete disaster for the Russians uh, because uh, they lo lost lost a lot of people, a lot of men. Uh, they tried to make uh, advance there. Of course, they managed to do some success. They they now they very close to the very city, Uglidar. Before they were not, but with huge losses, they made this uh, advance, and uh, they thought that eventually they're going to take a city or at least to you know circumvent it uh, and surround. But uh, they they were defeated. It and uh, it was I would say even humiliation uh, because if you I think everyone saw who is interested in the Ukraine war with the events in Uglidar because it was like uh, many Ukrainian uh, Russian equipment was destroyed and uh, men were lost. So after after all, the commander who was responsible for this direction, uh, Muradov, he was fired recently, by the way. Uh, so it is in Zaporozhye, it was Russians tried to make some advances as well, but again, they failed. Uh, that's it. Rest of the major part of entire uh, discourse, I would say, the military discourse is concentrated on Bakhmut. So mm. everyone knows right now Prigozhin, even before, but now he's more like a, than, than he's like a, the central piece of entire Ukrainian war. I exactly. Okay, so I'll just start with like the, as you said, the manpower has been where this war is being fought at the moment with bodies just from both sides being sent into the fight. And for instance, Ukraine obviously had mobilization since the start of the war, but then Russia started the mobilization of of reservists and previous armed forces. And then Wagner, as you said, have been involved heavily and they actually got their, mm -hmm. their forces, a lot of them from the prisons, which we, we know about from way back six, nine months ago when they were getting their recruitment drive. So then how have these additional troops changed the battlefield or is it actually not changed that much? Because, for instance, are there Russian troops that have been that have come in through mobilization? Are they inexperienced troops? Um, how effective have they been? And then now we see another wave of mobilization undergoing in Russia with the new electronic drafting measures. And do you see that they will be very effective? These troops, or do they lack the training to be proper combat units? It is a very big discussion in terms of because. Before beginning of this war, it was like a, like a commonly accepted that the future wars it's like a small, small effective special forces, small units who are penetrating, destroying everything, and so on and so on. But again, this war this this demonstrating that we are returning, or at least this maybe it's going to be last war or such level. But anyway. This war is demonstrating that we, it's last stage of, uh, uh, in, or not last stage, let's say it, this war is industrial level war. So it's demanding huge number of manpower. And uh, one of the reasons actually, it should be, I should to say this because from the very beginning of war, many, some Russian experts were complaining that the the density density or concentration of Russian forces on the front line was not enough in order to cope 
cope the, the, the Ukrainian pressure because the Ukrainians had a much more uh, outnumbered, I would say, uh, the, uh, the, the Russians. So this, one, this, this is, is exactly uh, what is happening in Ukraine. So the, in, order to, uh, uh, in order to cope with this uh, like a pressure of opposite society, you need to fit to any you know, corner of your front line in any meter, I would say, or any kilometer. Uh, that's why both sides required a lot of men. Uh, and uh, I'm not excluding that it's going to be second wave of uh, mobilization, even third wave of uh, mobilization. If it's if this war is going to be uh, going to be lasting for next uh, year or two years or three years, um, so it would consume a lot of equipment, a lot of resources, and uh, eventually a lot of men and uh, maybe even women from both sides. So. Um, this is what actually is happening, uh, but Ukraine, Ukrainian authorities they explain that we have a mobilization, but it's a permanent mobilization. You know what is interesting? That um, uh, in Russia was, I'm reading the, actually this book, um, uh, quite interesting, um, and it is one of the Russian general, he developed a theory of permanent uh, mobilization. So uh, and it required from the state constant, constant, constant mechanic, mechanical, I would say, mechanical mobilization of all people throughout the prolonged war. War. So if war is going to be long, so you need to have a strategy or plan, plan how to constantly mobilize own people. Yeah, mm -hmm. and have them be effective, I guess, as well, because just having mobilization at one point is one thing but actually having them as effective troops is another yes but but look for instance again uh, it is arguable position in my point of view why because if you have a front line where for instance in one square kilometer you have a 10 russian soldiers or 10 ukrainian soldiers but other side have a 100 soldiers or 20 soldiers mm. 200 so it's make a difference and doesn't matter how professional your soldiers so but at the same time, numbers can still yes, win out but, basically. Exactly. For, but at the same time, uh, even in terms of the uh, urban warfare, because what uh, actually the main function, which is uh, making, uh, in my opinion, uh, Wagner Group, they took on themselves responsibilities that we are taking this urban area, which is ending in Slavyansk. We, we just need to take it into the map. It is big, quite big, large area of urban, urban, large urban area. So just look, after Bakhmut, we have a half of Bakhmut city, Chasovyar. After Chasovyar, Konstantinovka. After that, several other cities. And eventually it's ending with huge cities, the biggest one, which under Ukrainian control in Donbass, it's uh, Slavyansk in Kramatorsk. So this war is going to be long, and it's I would say it's very specific uh, urban war theater, mm. you know, which is yeah quite different. And th this, uh, I just about mobilization. What are you saying? So partially, yes, it's it's it requires it's the non-professional people. Uh, it's big problems. But as we know, the Russians used this kind of uh, these prisoners 
like as they throw throwing them into directly in the battlefield, particularly in in the Bach in Bakhmut. So in order to review Ukrainian positions, so they were successful. Uh, but uh, Mobik, Mobik, this mobilized people, the Russians usually using in, in in front lines which are more or less stable or calm. You know, mm. the professionals concentrated in 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 about On near advancing positions. Yes, yes, yes. From let's say from Uglidar to let's say Bakhmut and eventually closer to Sever's region. Okay. Yeah. So I think we touched on this already a bit then about the current situation. Um, a lot of the fighting has obviously been over Bakhmut for, as you said, months and months. Has been very slow progress made by Russia, and then in recent days we've seen Wagner saying that they lost ground to the to the Ukrainians because of lack of ammunition. We've seen these arguments inside the internally within Russia between Wagner Group and the Ministry of Defense. Do you think that this could have some sort of decisive impact on the war going forward? Like. It's very strange to me that you have these two rival factions fighting on the same team almost. But Prigozhin, we have calling out Shoigu, the defense minister of Russia, saying that he's useless and he's causing their troops to be killed. Does this have the potential to disrupt the, the war effort from Russia or maybe change the way that Wagner will operate within the Russian armed forces? Ah, very, very tough question. Uh, I, I think uh, maybe... It's Two, two days ago was one of the video in TikTok, by the way, Ukrainian soldier said, we made an advance. We made advance or it was unclear. Was it like a, they really advanced with the heavy fightings or just like a, something, you know, the, they entered to the area, which was already empty. But uh, it seems that the fights were uh, heavy in this particular area. So it was flanks of uh, Bakhmut. What was complaining Prigozhin for a long period? It's like a, if, from my side, it's like a left uh, southern flank of uh, of Prigozhin, Prigozhin southern flank. So the advance was about uh, in depth about five five hundred meters, but in length it's about uh, two kilometers. So it's quite huge for this small theater. It's it has importance. Uh, and this flank was under command of the Ministry of Russian Ministry of Defense, so it's like a regular army. And uh, yesterday I was reading a Russian explanation what actually happened, and happened what? So these units, uh, regular units of Russian army, they didn't have a connection with the Wagner Group. So uh, it was said that the, we tried to connect with the Wagner Group. Wagner group tried to connect with us, but nobody eventually did, didn't manage to connect uh, these units. And what happened, what happened? It is, I think, even on the tactical level, we are witnessing huge, huge impact uh, on in inefficiency so of mm. Russian army. So uh, at the same time, of course, it's visible that Wagner group is effective unit or effective like uh, effective force, or even army, I would say, because they act as a separate force. But at the same time, the, this made a bit, not a bit, but seriously humiliating, I would say, in political level, in military level, entire Russian army, what's happening. Because uh, we could say that it's Maskirovka, yes, but he, he 
But what he's saying on direction of uh, general staff or minister of defense, it's, uh, I don't know, he could find completely different words, yes, uh, for, mm. the, for what he said on Gerasimus or, or, uh, or, or Shoigu, but he says the, the most heavy words, so it means that he really, Russian soldiers, regular soldier, normal soldiers, he see, sees a real deep crisis of the Russian army but, and, uh, and, and or between different forces of the Russian army. So it's really, it's definitely has a depressing impact uh, on uh, Russian, on Russian army. Uh, but at the, at the same time, uh, how it's impacting on, like, let's say on the political level, we'll see. But uh, in my opinion, we are witnessing sort of the Wagnerization because uh, Mezintsev, Mezintsev, he was one of the Mezintsev, he was uh, one of the deputy uh, of Shoigu, but he was fired, and uh, even before were, were gossips because in Russian Telegram you can see a lot of gossips, mm -hmm. and these gossips were saying that uh, actually this is Prigozhin's man in uh, uh, in inside the Russian Ministry of Defense. So after when he was fired, he immediately appeared in the in the in Bakhmut as a, one of the uh, deputies of uh, commander who is responsible for ba for Bakhmut operation. So he is now working for um, for, for Prigozhin. Yes, so Prigozhin has a real power, it seems, and Putin is allowing to him to act like what he's how he's acting, and. Uh, Surovikin, it's at least uh, according to Prigozhin, he says that uh, uh, he, he he's his man, yes. Uh, so that's why I saying that eventually we could see that uh, uh, not even political crisis, but military crisis within military political crisis within uh, military system of Russia, and uh, eventually it could end uh, with Wagnerization. So Wagnerization, it's like a um, when the Russian regular army could become sort of the big Wagner. When, for instance, when you re read the Russian actors, even from the beginning of the war, they complained that uh, a huge bureaucracy, huge bureaucracy regarding everything, even, for instance, if the Russians, Russian units, they noticing some activities or Ukrainians, units revealed themselves yes with mm. serious sufficient number they need to call to one general after this one general connect to another so it's huge bureaucracy line before someone is going to order fire on this direction particularly but in ukrainians quite more money so they quite they don't have a such a bureaucracy they're quite successful in terms of the reaction to to the current events so they uh, so they don't have a such long line. Mm -hmm. So, yes, uh, and that's why command and control system much better. But in Bach, in Wagner Group, it's closer to Ukrainian system. I mean, like uh, they don't have uh, this uh, same uh, hierarchical slow. Yes, yes, exactly. Structure. So it's like a, as a company, as a company which are just a business company. So they yeah. they try. Ah, uh -huh, please, please. Yeah, no, it's very, it's very interesting to see like the different um, things at play between the the competition of the Russian armed forces and the Wagner, and as you say, the potential that that 
dynamic could shift and Wagner obviously has support from Putin because otherwise it wouldn't be allowed to go on in the Soviet Union. If this sort of thing was going against the Ministry of Defense, then there would be serious repercussions for the person talking yeah, about it, I think. Mm -hmm. um, one other thing that I really wanted to touch on was like w how you think the European sentiment is towards the war, because we've seen Europe in general provide so much resources to Ukraine and I think Ukraine wouldn't be able to sustain the war effort without that support from US and from Europe. And have you seen any shift? You're obviously in Poland in the sentiment towards the war, or are people still very supportive of Ukraine? Uh huh. Because it's a very political question. I'm really avoiding uh, it's. Uh, I rather <laughs> concentrate on more. That's a me on the battlefield. <laughs> Yeah, or geopolitical, like uh, in in Asia, yes, and in the East, than in what's happening around me directly, physically. So, but I can say that, um, for instance, I was checking this information recently, and uh, it said that uh, in majority of the countries still supporting uh, and the the continuation of support, military support of Ukraine, but they are not so absolute how they were uh, absolute, how they were at the beginning of war. But uh, look, I, I think it's from one side, uh, we could say that uh, it is some kind of success that we are supporting e Ukraine. It's definitely success. But at the same time, if in the global in the global terms, it is some kind, sort of the, uh, I would say, not trap, but we really uh, now depending. We could not withdraw, so the maneuverability is lost. We can only go in the support because we see the geopolitical consequences of uh, if we are not going to support. But at the same time, we understand. Let's say just if just think about us as Mersheimer thinks. Yes, Mersheimer mm. this from the realism. He he would say. Somewhere we need to stop because the consequences could be much worse than uh, than uh, than uh, than we can imagine. Uh, uh, but at the same time, I we are living in, in human world, so it's emotions, it's political, it's everything, it's political, cultural. So we could not withdraw. We need we 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 need to support these people. We need to support this country. Uh, so this is how is going to be despite the realist uh, uh, quite reasonable arguments but uh, <laughs> it's impossible i think it's even for instance just imagine that the republicans are going to come to to power uh, i it's hard to imagine that uh, they're going to conduct d different yeah. policies i think it's they're going to maybe smooth modifications but they continue what uh, actually uh, democratic governments do yeah uh, yes Exactly. Do you think that China could be successful in mediating an end to the conflict, or is that unlikely? So so far, so far, let's say we are living in this year. Yeah. Mind is very short. Uh, in they they made a move, they made a move which is above what is Russia is doing, uh, uh, above what is any country in the world is doing. So. Uh, they made a move. Of course, they now uh, we ha we need. I think uh, the West need, need to somehow to react to this, and I hope they're going to find good solution. But uh, I don't think that it's going to be successful. Uh, at least how it's visible right now. But uh, but anyway, it's they made so they found the way. I mean, like they 
they look they created initiative of global civilization initiative of global development and initiative of global security look so everything it was provided recently maybe maximum one year if i'm not mistaken even a bit more so they developed this kind of structure regarding the world so it means that they are going to challenge the united states a right for hegemony so hmm. and ukrainian conflict they found as a was one of the most successful like where it's possible to uh, to pay attention where everyone is going to notice the the the, the proposition you know their yeah. initiative so that's why i'm saying that uh, the situation is quite complicated more than it is and i mean we have like china obviously has a lot of leverage over russia they're very reliant on Russia is very reliant on China buying their exports and giving them alternative routes to to sell their goods and actually import materials as well. As yes, China and India, I guess, are the two main the two main please, please. forces they need to keep the two main countries to keep on side in some way to be able to maintain their war. Otherwise, they would have to they would have to end. If I guess if China and India both stopped buying Russian goods, there'd be no money to fund the war. Yes, exactly. So, um, uh, in one of the articles I, I wrote, it was maybe months, two months or three months ago. I said that actually we are witnessing because the problem. Look, I for, I forgot uh, this author uh, who wrote this book, but uh, um, it, ah, Svechin. Sorry, I'm reading the book of Svechin, this uh, Soviet general. He wrote uh, similar to to Clausewitz's book regarding theory of uh, war, and he said, "Look what happened in the during the Prussian uh, German, German Prussian French war." Uh, he said that war was short, but at the same time, he providing evidences that in the 19th century, I mean this um, 18, uh, 1871, when this war happened, uh, he said, "Look, if the French." French, uh, they have were able to to supply force constantly. What happened? The Germans, despite uh, this, they decided to concentrate on the capital, on the capital. Mm. So they conquered the capital. That's it. And it was enough for France, for French French army, to stop resistance. So, uh, but if they would not decided to stop resistance, they have enough forces to for long, long war. Mm. Uh, so, and he said that future in the 20th century, he and he was right. Uh, the, it's industrial wars. So, when you have a heavy economy, industrial economy, war is going to be long, 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 long. So that's why it's to your point. So China. China, India, they become as rares of Russia. So they be, so Russia now is able to maintain with such level as we are witnessing right now for a long period of time, such war. Uh, and Ukraine as well, because now Ukrainians uh, rares spread to the territory of Romania, territory of, uh, uh, of Poland, somewhere else. So uh, it, this conflict could be lost. For, for at least for, for till the end of this year, <laughs> I think. Well, that's all we've got time for now. For yes, for the, but I guess we could talk about it for a long time. But uh, yes, thanks very much for your insights, Ridvan. It's been great. Thank you, Ronan. Thank you. So welcome back. 
Thank you for listening to that first part with Ridvan Bari, which was interviewed two weeks ago now, or a week and a half ago. Now, me and Wanfrey are sitting down, and we're going to go through the current situation, how it's evolved, and try and provide some analysis for the future state of the conflict, as well as future makeup of Russia and Ukrainian forces may be. A little bit that we wanted to talk about is what is already talked in the previous interview. There has been a focus on the city, around the city of Bakhmut in these last six months of the war, and as recent as three days ago, on the 20th of May, Prigozhin, the main sponsor of the PMC group Wagner, has claimed actually to have conquered the entire city, and the Russian government has said it too. However, the Ukrainians still claim that Bakhmut is not lost, that there still fight is around the city, and this has become to be the greatest, the biggest battle in the in the war after 18 months. The estimates are of hundreds of thousands uh, dead, uh, at least 100,000 on each side. And what we've seen is also a little bit of the division that the Russian military has in regards to the, the invasion. We've seen that Russia, apart from the military, uh, relies on other divisions, not just uh, Wagner Group, but also on the Kadyrov or even uh, divisions that are made up by companies, by companies owned by Russian oligarchs, such as Gazprom which could lead in the future into a, into a big problem because when you have a fractioned military uh, where the responsibility and the duty is not shared and there's competition, as we've seen uh, among the different uh, groups, there might be, we might be seeing a problem there. Yeah, I think to, talk, to touch more on that, I think really what Bakhmut has taught us is the underlying weakness of the Russian military campaign because they... Even though they're saying now that they've taken it, even just last week we had Prigozhin saying that they were constantly being attacked on the flanks because the Ministry of Defense troops or the Russian army were not protecting their flanks properly. Then he was saying he was going to retreat. And all this stems from like a real lack of proper communication channels and direct line of authority within the Russian military, which I think has been brought to the front, brought to the fore because of this long drawn out conflict where both sides have been in close proximity and it's really shown that this factionalism exists within the Russian armed forces. I think that Bakhmut actually sets a really bad example of the Russian military's um, quality of its capacity and its ability to keep fighting in the war from now on because as you said, Prigozhin's got one side, then we've seen him arguing with Shoigu publicly, coming out and really aggressively Shoigu going to the front abuse. apparently uh, staying a week in the front but still like the messages were coming so that was actually really weird you know? exactly the whole thing is is super strange that they've had this real intense internal fighting within the two main Russian armed forces as you said there's also other factions that exist mm -hmm. Kadyrov and other oligarchy leaders but they're the two main the craziest part is the Gazprom divisions when I read the first time about it I was like what? And and like you say, now maybe Bakhmut's taken, but it's taken them over six months to take this one town, which has some strategic value, yes, but it's one of a string of towns which actually make up the, the transport route. And if it's true that the Russian force is still getting hampered on the, on the flanks and losing a lot of troops, then it doesn't really seem sustainable to me that they keep coming down further and further without first shoring up those flanks and like this is going to become a super long drawn out conflict. 
yes. even more than it already has because if you can only take one city in six months, yeah. they've got there's five more in the road after Buckingham. <laughs> precisely, and there's even been there's even been uh, talks. Uh, first of all, that Wagner will leave uh, Bakhmut uh, starting in the 25th of May and finishing the first of, the first of June to replenish its troops and so on. But there is also talk on like those troops actually being used now in Sudan or being sent to Sudan. I saw this. Just the, there may be less of uh, manpower to be used by but Wagner expert experience. Exactly. The, the report was saying that mm. a lot of the experienced generals, obviously a lot of the Wagner troops are from the prisons and things like that, and they have no real combat experience, and they've been trained by these and those experienced Wagner guys. Thrown into the, exactly. Into the Whereas these more experienced guys have been doing the training and and they might actually be being sent now to other conflicts, which are more profitable probably for Wagner and less risk, I would say. What we can mention about this is that uh, according to the estimates of uh, Western intelligence, particularly the British intelligence, until January 2023, there were around 200,000 uh, killed or wounded or prisoners made out of uh, Russian troops. And from January till now, uh, May, there's another 100,000. Again, these are estimates, and uh, we don't have estimates that good of the Ukrainian uh, side, but we can think about something something similar. Talking a little bit about the capacity of, uh, of each of them, Ukraine still uh, will maintain uh, martial law and general mobilization until August 18th, and there's uh, around 19 divisions being trained now uh, with NATO forces and other countries which have technically been getting ready for, for a counterattack that still hasn't arrived and that uh, we'll talk about the possibility of it because it's a little bit difficult. On the Russian side, according to the official uh, data from the, from the Russian MOD, uh, until September there were uh, 325,000 recruits, uh, new recruits, and then in January they managed to do another 114,000 recruits, which leads to an estimated total of 440. 440,000 uh, new recruits. However, the quality of these recruits, their motivation to to participate in the war and 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 these matters, it's still it's still taking into it's is we still need to get it with a grain of salt. Then, with regards of the military capabilities of both in the beginning of the war, uh, the military capacity of Russia was overwhelmingly bigger than the one of Ukraine particularly in the territory of tanks and air superiority. However, particularly in the territory of, uh, of tanks, this balance has actually shifted. It's still on the side of Russia, but it's shifted. Why? Because according to, again, Western intelligence, around 10,000 vehicles, more than 10,000 vehicles have been lost by Russia in the, since the beginning of the campaign, including 1972 tanks which represents one-third of the tanks that Russia owned prior to the war. And many of those, I guess many of those 6,000, they had the biggest tank fleet in the world prior yes. to the war with over 6,000, but many of those were old Soviet-era tanks, which may have been upgraded, but the state of them was questionable to begin with. And I'm mm -hmm. guessing that if you're, you're sending tanks to the battlefield, you're sending your best tanks, you're not holding the best tanks in reserve. So exactly. For sure, Russia's scaled up its military industrial production capabilities drastically during the war in, and they had stockpiled ammunition before the war but these losses are massive for the russian military forces i mean to lose 2000 tanks plus 2000 tanks 8000 vehicles 100000 hundreds of thousands and, and support and everything 200000 people counting the least uh, it's a it's a big toll 
in the end, it's a it's a really big toll for for eighteen months, eighteen months, sixteen months. Um, I, I would just say quickly then, mm-hmm. what do you think? Do you think that that could come back to become a internal issue in Russia, where there's a possibility that the war could be ended because of an internal push against the war? We we see just news today even yes. about some. Uh, let me just let me just uh, finish uh, one second with the tanks part with the uh, equipment and and we go with that because I really think it's interesting that precisely because of what we've seen today. Just to finish, why has it balanced? Why has the the military capability balanced also? Because Ukraine has been receiving tanks from many sides, plus also they've actually captured many tanks from Russian troops. So as of today. Around 540, well, 543 tanks have been taken from Russia, and then around 700 more tanks have been uh, donated or supplied by Western allies. And over 100 of those are like cutting edge. They over 100 of those are the Chalkers, uh, the Leopards uh, coming from Germany, the Abrams from the US, Abrams and the, from the US, and the UK. yes, yeah. and Poland modified T-72s, and uh, yes, the Abrams from the US. So uh, yes, that's why it's been imbalanced. Now let's go with that. What you're saying, if that, if this um, mobilization, if these uh, massive losses in the Russian side could actually lead to some sort of problem internally, and what we woke up yesterday, and what well, what we went to sleep yesterday with, uh, and what we woke up today um, has been with attacks in the Belgorod region, which is uh, Russia. It's uh, bordering the region of Kharkiv in Ukraine. And these attacks have been allegedly made by some Russian separatist uh, groups. Yes, Russian uh, Ukraine supporting Russian precisely people in the region. There's two of them. There's uh, one that is the Liberty of Russia Legion, which is an Ukraine-based uh, Russian uh, operative, and the other one is a Russian volunteer corps, which have actually been involved previously in 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 uh, con- in insurgency uh, in these areas mm-hmm. in Russia. As for example, I also saw a video this morning of uh, of um, flying balloons with a Russian blue, white, and blue flag over Moscow. So there's signs of like a potential group of uh, potential groups of people that may be, for their reasons, either they're against the war or they're against the mobilization or they're against the resources put into the mobilization, but they are clearly not they are clearly not in line with the government and. In my opinion, we could see this happening more often if the mobilization starts again, if the mobilization continues. Yeah, because in the end, it is, I mean, it's really easy to to call for a mobilization and everything when you're still in your house chilling in Moscow. But if they start calling people that are outside from the reserves, although uh, the estimated uh, mobilization capacity of Russia or active and inactive uh, effectives is of around one million people. Uh, that's if, if they all that's come. if they all come. So, uh, but I still think it would be something that uh, little by little could actually be a problem for for Russia, and uh, it would make them divert uh, resources from the front. It would make them having to maybe even apply a more strict policy within the country, which may backfire. Yeah, I agree. I think like if we look at the internal. Internal situation in Russia. The, the polling still says the war has a vast majority of support, mm-hmm. and I think that's due to well, definitely is due to the propaganda and everything that's perpetrated within the country. You have very little access to external sources of information, and that sort of propaganda is hard to break. But then you see these 
uh, acts basically of counter or insurrection maybe against it's the government. Yes, exactly. How uh, how yes. they've been? They've captured armored vehicles. They've captured. Uh, then, they've attacked. Uh, we, well, we had the And then secondly, like we had the drone attack on the Kremlin. I mean, it wasn't really attack. We don't really know what the who was behind that. I I don't believe that that was would have been perpetrated by U.S. and also by the Ukraine. I think it was not sophisticated enough to be perpetrated by one of those state operatives. So it most likely. My opinion came from an internal. Yeah, or even the attacks in Crimea, for example, in Sevastopol, like uh, Ukraine hasn't really claimed them, so there is still the possibility of having been because these drone attacks cannot really like come. I mean, they can come from Ukraine, but it is diff it would be surprising that the Russian that the Russian air defense and everything could not see would not see them until they reach oil tankers, as it happened uh, some weeks ago. So, so we may see that might be a, a, a point in what you're saying. So then I think yeah. There, there is potential then for a sort of an end to the war, maybe bring Russia to the negotiating table because of these internal pressures. And also, I mean, Russia is going to be faced with a huge internal demographic problem now for the next few decades. They've really caused this problem massively. They already were going through a big demographic problem where people from the rural regions, such as Siberia, such as these peripheral regions in Russia had a huge lack of young people. And that's where all these cons conscripts are coming from. Yes. Like you said, so if the more that that drags on, the more that they get sent to the front line, the more of them are killed, you end up with these peripheral regions like Siberia, like like Chechnya, uh, where you've, you're going to have this massive demographic problem that's mm -hmm. going to get worse and worse and worse. And so this is going to affect the Russian economy for years to come, regardless of the outcome of the war now. I think they've gone on for so long, they've lost so much troops in the in the war that they're going to be really hampered for years to come in terms of dem demography. It's also, I mean, even though we're saying this, it's also good to note that because we lack the officials, uh, like official numbers from uh, Ukraine, we also cannot grasp exactly the impact that Bakhmut has had, for example, for a counteroffensive or that it's having in the population because of the martial law. There are also restrictions in uh, in messaging and, and everything. So what we see from 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 here is a more united Ukraine that it might be, uh, or at least not, we don't see those saboteurs happening in uh, in Ukraine from Ukrainians to the Ukrainian government. So we can see a little bit more, more unity there. But it is also left to see, especially this summer, before uh, September, October, November comes, how will Ukraine be able to to come back if they come back to counterattack if they counterattack to regain territory, maybe to settle uh, territory. Uh, that is something that is still to to be seen. And now a little bit going out of of the main battlefront and uh, how it's been developed. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how it's impacted in these last months in the region. We've seen from the West to Ukraine a scale-up of military aid. Germany accepted sending tanks. Poland keeps on sending a lot of tanks still uh, per capita. Uh, Poland and the Baltic states are the highest uh, contributors uh, per capita. Which makes sense. Which makes sense because they're scared. The United States has just added some more uh, military budget to the already uh, $30 billion that they've given to Ukraine. And we're also seeing a couple a couple sparks of anti-Russian uh, sentiment in regions or in countries that are close either culturally or, or physically to the conflict. 
Uh, in Moldova, for example, uh, we've got lately demonstrations, a uh, pro-European Union, and actually the president has gone out saying that within seven years, Moldova will be part of the EU, which is a big statement because uh, in the east of Moldova, there's the region of Transnistria, which is... Uh, Russian separatist... Russian separatist... Area. It's it's, yes. it's an area that's it, it's part of Moldova, but... but to, be fair, to be fair, one of the re one of the things that is characteristic from Transnistria and Moldova is that even though there is this, uh, there yeah. is this conflict, they actually have... A unified government a unified system, yeah. and they have better relations that you could expect from from a country yeah. that has got such a separatist thought. So that is something that will be really critical because Moldova borders both Ukraine and the European Union. It would bring the EU closer to Ukraine and thus uh, closer to Russia. So that's something to take care of. And another part, thing that sparked the news uh, in the last months were the, the demonstrations in Georgia and Tbilisi against the foreign agent law, basically a law that aimed to to identify any corp any organization, any NGO or whatever that uh, see foreign funding exactly. over twenty percent or something yes. as a it was called the Russian law, the well, Russian foreign law. That wasn't it was actual name, but it was copied directly yes, yes, from yes, yes, yes. Russian law, and so it got the nickname within Georgia, and exactly. and it caused the people to come out and mobilize on the streets against it. And again, we see some groups in Georgia still very pro-Russia, but. Uh, increasing amount uh, increasing majority now actually being pro-eu pro-western mm -hmm. and when beforehand it was not necessarily so uh, decisive for one yeah. it was more split before yes 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 and actually for example i would also add that at the same time that in the surrounding of the of the conflict there's more anti-russian sentiment as you can because is russia is seen as an aggressor Outside of this uh, inner ring, actually, um, relations with Russia are not as tight and as bad as it was uh, in December. BRICS, for example, has been uh, trying to boost up their cooperation. Well, I wouldn't say BRICS totally, I would say, but definitely South Africa has been... Yeah, South, Africa's been South Africa has come up as an ally of, of Russia. Uh, but they still claim neutrality, but mm -hmm. uh, they're very much being accused of being... A close ally of Russia within Africa for sure and as BRICS but yeah I think if we look at India is actually probably very yes, ideologically yes. away yeah. from Russia but they're still going to take Russia oil because that's good business for them <laughs> exactly they take cheap, they take cheap, cheap Russian oil. oil they process it and then they sell it and they're them. charging in rupees yes, they're yes. paying in rupees which uh, Russia was pushing back on now mm -hmm. but yes 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 actually I wanted to mention those both well I want to mention Brazil India and China Brazil's uh, with the new uh, with the new government uh, headed by Lula da Silva, it's got a more pacifistic approach into the situation, like trying to find a situation like everyone's got some sort of guilt in this in this situation, blah blah. So it's a big country uh, that takes a stand. Turkey, which is also a regional important power, is heading into the second into the runoff of the elections. Although everything seems to point out that Erdogan will renew his mandate. Uh, still, uh, there could be the possibility of that government being trumped or not being strong enough, uh, because Turkey has seen a massive inflation. Also, the earthquake that happened some months ago with uh, a death toll of like five thousand, uh, fifty thousand people. So the Turkish government that has been relatively close to to Russia in this uh, since the beginning of the war may be may see a shift on their on their policy because of internal uh, matters. In India, uh, as we as we've commented, as you've uh, rightfully pointed out, 
they buy Russian oil, Russian crude, really cheap, and then they resell it to anyone else. So they're making a business out of it. And there were also saying, and there were also talks that India might be reselling Russian equipment, Russian purchased equipment in the 80s and reselling it back to Russia. Mm -hmm. So Soviet purchased, Soviet purchased equipment well, yeah. and they're reselling it back to Russia and, and missiles and so on. Another ally of Russia, Iran, has like they keep providing with uh, with drones, but the reality is the internal situation in Iraq in Iran is also very precarious. It's also very precarious. Uh, high inflation, still the remnants of the Masha Amini movement, woman life freedom, and uh, and then China, and China although still officially doesn't give military equipment to Russia or doesn't supply with military aid. It surely has taken a stand on trying to, or at least publicly, has taken a stand on trying to solve the conflict. And thus they've met uh, both with, uh, Xi Jinping has met both with uh, President Putin and with uh, President Zelensky. And uh, actually what, what struck me the most, I don't know for you, but what struck me the most was that after the meeting with Zelensky, Zelensky gave a speech in where, well, gave a speech like a, in the meeting, in like the press conference, he said that the that the call had been fruitful, that uh, they had touched about the potential Chinese peace plan for the conflict, and that they were willing the, that uh, Ukraine was willing to to improve and and enhance their relations with China. In my opinion that has one reading, and is that still China is the biggest producer in the world, well, so you need to have good relations like trade wise China, and also like for example for exporting like, the grain or something like this. But exactly I, like I say, for the future from now. There've been long talking about this Ukrainian counteroffensive, and I think maybe the peace talks will actually depend somewhat on what happens there. I don't expect it to be like a big sweeping, mm -hmm. full frontal attack. It's more likely to be uh, an attack, say, to try and cut off the supply lines in the south Great. for Russia, so you can isolate the Crimean Peninsula again and cut off logistics there. You don't need to take up much, that much ground then and be able to really hamper Russia's effort, which. Then from there, you can sort of spend time just pushing on the different flanks and slowly, slowly regaining territory. Ukraine don't have the manpower, I think, to be able to make a big offensive. But but as you said, these peace talks, then it China's been trying to t go to the, uh, be the negotiator, but I don't see Ukraine accepting any resolution where they lose territory to, to Russia, which is understandable. And... Likewise, I think it's more a diplomatic push from Beijing to to try and put their their credentials on the world stage. We actually saw, like just last week, the delegation of African leaders, including Cyril Ramaphosa from South Africa, Senegal, Egypt, Uganda, and and two more, which I can't think of right now, go and oh, they haven't gone yet, but they're going to visit Kiev and visit Moscow and try and negotiate a settlement but i think at the end of the day none of these will have any real bearing i think the things that will actually influence whether the war stops or not is how long russia can maintain their domestic support for the war and how long they can have their troops still keep on fighting without being without being completely knocked off the battlefield and conversely the same kind of goes for ukraine ukraine will keep getting western support as long as they can keep fighting, in my opinion. We've seen that now. The The support has been unprecedented. We've had 15 months of support financially, militarily escalating to tanks now. And the only thing they're asking for now is jets. But, I mean, jets 
it's not going to be the decisive thing on the battlefield. It's they've got a, ATC to train the They've troops. got the UK shadow strike, long range, longer range missiles. They've got all sorts of things now, which are actually they've got Patriot defense uh, anti air systems. Like Ukraine is supported absolutely to the hilt, and so it would make no sense now for the Western partners to actually back out at this stage if ukraine shows a willingness to continue fighting they will be supported so that's why i think the only way that this conflict ends is from a pressure inside of russia to stop the conflict potentially where they can come to the negotiation table i don't know how that would come about how it would look inside of russia whether putin would be, still be the leader of russia if that was to happen because he's kind of wedded his whole career to this attack and yes if it's and, basically and, planning them exactly and it hasn't been successful like he hoped and so then what he's not going to stand down but he might be made to you know that's the yes. that's the only way i see it coming to a, a close in the short term i think i i want to point out one thing that it's also uh, in the statistics of and this is more or less going to be ending also on the statistics of the public support to the to the support of the states to ukraine in the west for example, that is actually interesting. It's lowered. Uh, it it came from a, from around an 80, 85%, 90% when the war started. And obviously, because of the hard winter that uh, there has been in Europe, internal politics in the US and so on, uh, that support hasn't kept itself at the level it was. It's still majoritary support, but it's gone from levels of, as I said, 85 and so on, even in countries like uh, Poland, where it was like 100% in Poland has reduced to 78, I think it is. And in Western countries, uh, we may see a reduction of this support, which doesn't necessarily have to entail that they, the states themselves will reduce, will reduce the support to Ukraine, because uh, in this sense, I believe that geopolitics go over the will of, of the peoples of the, of the country, unless it's massively against. But yeah, that is something that uh, that we will also have to to keep a to keep a look. And I agree with you. I mean, looking a little bit forward in the future, uh, I don't see the conflict ending uh, unless I don't see the conflict ending in a situation where Ukraine loses territory. And especially, I think the next three, I, I think the next months until until uh, winter should be decisive. Because here is where, in my opinion, we're going to see the real potential of the Russian military to of the new conscripts to, to resist or to attack. And uh, if there is not that capacity, in my opinion, there's there's two there's three possibilities. One is that Ukraine actually does that counteroffensive that they've been talking about. And as you say, they cut off uh, Crimea or they cut off uh, strategic positions and then try to take over slower. The second is that um, the Russian military is not good enough to to go forward, but it's also enough to maintain itself in the fortified in the fortified places that they've been fortifying for this last uh, six seven months. And the third one is that there is actually a problem internally within the military in Russia, and uh, it collapses at one point, or they start having a more internal problem. But the conflict in in my opinion, unfortunately, we still will still be there. That's after. that's the biggest thing to watch for me. I think just how the internal politics play out in Russia, whether we see Prokhorin take even more space away from the Minister of Defense uh, Sergei Shoigu, because at the moment they're like two Minister of Defenses effectively, and you can't really have two Minister of Defenses when you're having a war. So mm -hmm. that's the internal struggle that will be interesting to see how it plays out and. I think 
I don't think it would necessarily be decisive for the war, but I think, yeah, decisive for Russia's internal makeup at the end of the war. Yeah. Okay. Well, this has been our our roundup of the situation in Ukraine. As you remember, we did the one in, in December and now this one in May, just before summer. Let us know if you liked it. And uh, as always, we'll see you in the next episode of the Geopolitical Pico. The Geopolitical Pico is created by Ronan Wordsworth and Juan Francisco Muñoz, two Geopolitical Studies postgrads from Charles University in Prague, Czech Republic. Follow us on Instagram at The Geopolitical Pico or Twitter at The Geopico for more content and follow us on every podcast platform.